Hello, I'm Jim Irvin, and you're welcome along to another episode of You're Not On The List, the podcast about forgotten albums and the people who love them. I've two very special guests looking down the back of the sofa for music for us today. Philip Target Adams was born in London and, because his father had a parapetic job with BOAC, was raised in various countries in the Americas. He saw his first guitar in Cuba, age six. That instrument would become his life's work when, using his mother's maiden name, at the age of 21, he became famous as Phil Manzanera, exotic fly-eyed guitarist with Roxy Music. He would go on to co-write some essential Roxy songs, including Amazona, Out of the Blue and Over You. He's made several solo albums, played in the bands Quiet Sun and 801, co-produced records for his close friend David Gilmore and worked on the final Pink Floyd album Endless River. He's just about to release his second album, collaborating with Kiwi songwriter Tim Finn, and is soon to start work on a Roxy Music reunion tour of the UK later this year. Matt Berry first appeared on our screens in humorous interludes during a show about video games at the end of the 90s. Since then, he's become known as one of the UK's funniest character actors in appearances with Garth Marenghi, The Mighty Boosh, The IT Crowd, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer's House of Fools, his own series Toast of London and Toast of Tinseltown, and dozens of appearances on film and TV as a voice artist. But before all that, he was a musician, releasing his first solo album, Jackpot, in 1995. And he's been signed for the last decade to Acid Jazz, meticulously creating albums of acid folk, psychedelia, and even classic TV themes. Last year's Gather Up was a terrific compilation album of highlights from his releases so far for the label. He joins us just as the fourth season of his internationally popular TV show What We Do in the Shadows is about to air, wherein he plays an aristocratic porn actor turned vampire, Leslie Laszlo Cravensworth. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm laughing and I haven't even seen it yet. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, both for making the time to come and gas about popular music with me. Uh, hope you're both well. Where are you calling us from, Phil? Very well, thank you. I'm <clears throat> sitting in my garden shed uh, in uh, West Sussex. I've got um, two banana trees growing outside my window and a trachycarpus. So I'm imagining I'm living in South America, but I'm actually in West Sussex. Ah. That's very good. Where, where are you, Matt? I am currently just by Tower Bridge. Oh, okay. In the tower? Not in the tower, just by the tower. <laughs> Is it a long stretch? <laughs> yeah. Phil, for many years, if anyone asked me what's, yes. the, what's the greatest album of all time, I'd usually say For Your Pleasure by Roxy Music. It just seemed to have everything I admired oh, going on in it. So I've been a huge fan of the records, but somehow never got to see you live. So I was really excited by the announcement of these forthcoming reunion shows. Um, what spurred that on? Is it just the anniversary? I guess it really is because, you know, one suddenly it was 2022 and I was having a cup of tea with the singer, Mr. Ferry, just about 10 minutes from where I am now in the countryside. He just said, do you fancy doing some gigs? And I was <laughs> shocked, really. And I said, if you do, if you really do, I, I, I'm always up for it. Um, so, yeah, so we're doing it. And, um, because we didn't have a manager or any infrastructure, we've had to start from scratch. So there's a lot of uh, parts to put together, you know, to make it all happen, quite apart from learning how to play the tracks again and I haven't played them for years and I'm going to enjoy it. Is it hard to remember 
what sounds are used and what you were going through and all that kind of stuff. Are you into recreating those meticulously? I have the multitracks here right in front of me. When I listen to some of the guitar parts, for instance, what I thought I played is not exactly what I played and the sounds and everything. So, yeah. you know, I, I, we're going to make a big effort to make it sound like it did and uh, going back to the original sources, you know, uh, this is the time to do that kind of thing. Matt, not to put you on the spot or anything, but are you a Roxy fan yourself? Well, <laughs> again, For Your Pleasure is one of my favourite albums. In Every Dream, I'm a Heartache. It's actually one of my favourite songs of all time. Uh-huh. It wasn't until I heard that song that I kind of realised that you didn't need to follow the sort of normal song, Beatles song structure, yeah. if you like. An extended verse, no chorus, no normal structure whatsoever. And I remember sort of hearing that for the first time in the late 80s when I was a young teenager, and it just sort of blew my head off. I thought, right, okay, then you can do anything <laughs> with a song. The reason Roxy is still sounds good, quite frankly, even though I'm obviously blowing my own trumpet or playing my own guitar or whatever. Toot away. Help yourself. Uh, yeah. Is because really we could never, no one could write a proper song. And so the only way we could do it was to create music and then Brian would go away and try and write a top line to it. Mm. So, yeah. you know, pretty much everything from the, from the first one and a half albums till 1983 was done in a particular way where we'd do all the music first. And I mean all the music, the solos and everything. <laughs> it's a risky strategy because... You know, it's hit or miss. Maybe seventy percent worked. There were demos of the first uh, for the first record, weren't there? I, I know. Well, the first, you see, that's why I said the first one and a half. By the time I came into the picture, yeah, they'd been working on you know with Eno and stuff in a little garret in Deptford or something. So they'd been developing that, but it sounds very, very different when you hear the demos of the first uh, um, to what it ended up on the album. You know, I, I joined on the uh, 14th of February, 1972, having had an audition on the 7th. Uh, I think three weeks later in the studio recording the album, having done two pub gigs. <laughs> and uh, eight weeks later, it was out and it was number four in the charts. And we were, same day as Ziggy Stardust, it was released. And we were uh, supporting um, Bowie at a pub in Croydon, the Greyhound. It all happened incredibly quickly for me, anyway. Well, I had this as a question, and you've kind of answered it. I mean, could you tell straight away that it was going to work, was, was what I was going to ask. I answered Nad, Melody Maker, looking for a guitarist, you know. Yeah. Met them and, and did the audition and, and failed it, actually. But <laughs> I thought, these guys, they're a bit older than me, and I thought, there's something special about, you know, when you meet Eno for the first of all, Brian Ferry, you know, and, and Andy Mackay, and they're, so like culture they all been a university they had bank accounts you know they had cars <laughs> brian and andy were teachers you know brian was teaching sculpture at a girls school in clapham and andy was teaching music yeah. you know at, at holland park comprehensive oh what a shame i really want to be in this band but then <laughs> you know the things didn't work out with Dave list incredible guitarist from the nice yeah and so you know they said, come, can you come and mix the sound? I said, I haven't got the first clue about what to do. Don't worry, Eno will teach you. Because Eno 
wasn't allowed to be on stage at that point because he made everyone too nervous. So he was in the audience <laughs> mixing the sound. Yeah, and eventually uh, I said, there's a guitar there, do you fancy ever go? I'd sort of had an inkling this might happen. Learned all the songs, not that they were difficult, only about three chords. Yeah, join the next day and boom, boom, boom. You know, right place at the right time. Can I ask, Phil? Yeah. Why did you fail the first audition? Um, I had um, a terrible cold, sneezing the whole time. Right. Also, you know, <laughs> I'd gone from playing prog, you know, in 178 and all these weird things. And then we were jamming on like a two chord Carol King song or something. Like, and, and after about three minutes, I thought, oh, this is a bit strange. But I played them some of the music that I was uh, involved with. They hated it. Oh, right. And uh, But we got on a, a sort of friends, and I bump into them all over the place. Brian thought, well, there's this guy called Dave O'List, who's actually quite famous. Let's get him in the band. And then I used to see ads in Melody Maker saying, Dave O'List's Roxy. And I think they thought, uh-oh. So that was promoters, was it? Yeah, that's promoters, typical. Uh, uh, but also, um, I think David had been uh, spiked in, on the American tour, that famous American tour that the nice went on and he just uh, was a bit wonky he had the peter green effect was it yeah sort of matt your own recording career has been resolutely solo did you never try going down the band route when i play live it's obviously with a band so it looks like i've always been in a band but no i mean it's like anything it's just the just the control freak him it's the same as sort of writing comedy all these kind of things. It's just much faster if I can do it on my own. And I had to learn how to play everything because there wasn't anybody in my hometown that really sort of played anything. Mm. So that was just out of necessity. And then, you know, once it gets to the rehearsal stage with the rest of the band, you know, then things can sort of change and whatever. But up until that point, I've just always sort of done that, that side of things on my own. Is doing something like what we do in the shadows a bit like being in a band? If you've got the same core cast kind of developing it together, is does it feel similar to that? Well, the the most significant similarity I would say would be timing. As long as your timing's right <laughs> and is good, that kind of has to be dead on, as it does, you know, when you're recording music. Let me ask the same question I asked Phil. What were your first impressions going in to to that show? Did you know it was going to work? immediately no i didn't i thought the opposite i i honestly thought it wouldn't get past the pilot stage uh because there'd been a film yeah and everybody was into the film i was thinking they're just not going to be interested in this but i was good friends with jermaine and tiger so i agreed to do it and five years later six years over long it's been yeah yeah is it fun to do are you enjoying it I love it, yeah, to be honest. It is great fun. You know, it's very rare to be so sort of, you know, to be kind of free within a show because it's largely improvised and that's just the best fun. Is there lots of corpsing? Um, It depends how cold it is or how high up we are with me personally. I can't really corpse if I'm either freezing or very high up because I'm afraid of heights. So (laughs) I don't find anything funny if I'm... 50 foot up in the air, 60 foot. How often are you 50 foot up in the air then? Quite a lot because we're on wires because we 
you know, because we're bats. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. Where do you shoot it? Uh, in Toronto. Oh, I see. So that's why it might be cold then. Yeah. Right. It's freezing. Does that mean you, you avoid the L.A. vibe that you skewer in Toast of Tinseltown? No, you have to always end up there to sort of promote it and do the rest of it. <laughs> really? So there's no avoiding. <laughs> how, Phil, how, how have the sort of interband relationships in Roxy Music, have they altered significantly down the years or do you all revert to how you always have been as soon as you get together? We did, when we did some recording, we attempted to do a Roxy album, could have been 10 years ago, I've lost track of time, uh, uh, with Eno, actually, and with Chris Thomas, our original producer. It was a rack studio, so, and when we went to uh, up into the canteen on the first day, Eno said, this is ridiculous. Everybody has absolutely reverted <laughs> to exactly the same kind of person and uh, relationship that it was in 1972 yeah it's weird you know so and and why didn't that album work was that the reason because you'd reverted to type no i just there just wasn't the the sort of spark you know you you can get the people together again but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come up with great stuff so we listened to it and we just said nah nah yeah nah okay let's not bother you know, I've still got the tracks. Occasionally I listen to them hoping that they will be better than I thought they were. And then I listen to them and I think, no, no. Being in a band is an unnatural state. It's not meant to be, really. Mm. It is for a little bit, maybe when you're a certain age, but then it just doesn't necessarily work. Matt, that's one advantage of being solo, isn't it? You've stayed together longer than the Beatles. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you're very fond of Tubular Bells, which came out the year before you were born. Was that an, an influence on doing it all yourself? That was probably the biggest influence artistically for me ever, um, for that main reason. I was 12 or 13 when I first heard that, and then I found out that he was... 18, 19 when he recorded it. So that just gave me every excuse, you know, to be the best musician that I could and to do it all myself and learn how to record, learn how tape works, because it was tape then. You know, and you become an amateur engineer in the process, you know, without kind of realising it, because you have to, because there's no one there to help you. Mm. Yeah, and it was that album, you know, that kind of, you know, that was the was the reason for everything really when you started out recording with the jackpot in 1995 were you trying to do a tubular bells type thing there well no i was just interested in things being in parts and things being in the long form that's where in every dream home of heart it comes in in the fact that something you know that was a bit longer than sort of two and a half minutes and could even be all of one side. I mean, I thought that was the most punk thing that I'd ever heard of, the fact that a guy had got one track that was all of the first side. Yeah. I thought that was cool. And that was more of an inspiration, just to sort of play around with form, I guess. Phil, it it seems from the outside that, that Brian was a bit of a dictator, but that's not doesn't sound the case from what you're describing about how you actually made the, the records. Is that true? Yeah, totally. I mean, we had total freedom, actually. Do you know? It's like, okay, it's your turn. You're on. You do your part. Yeah. On Dream Home, for instance, I thought 
well, I, I want a drony type sound, so I'll just detune all my strings to E flat. That means that some of them are very, very slinky. Then I could go behind the, the nut of the guitar and bend it to sound a bit like a sitar and stuff. So putting that through a sound created that sort of drone effect that, that combined with the farfisa created this sort of texture. Oh, that's how you did it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. And, and I mean, that, you know, Roxy was about creating a musical textural world for Brian's strange voice to sit in and those words to sit in. So it was a different kind of songwriting, really. It, it was about sound and you know, all that came from the palette you acquire from listening to classical music, uh, avant-garde music, systems music, electronic music, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the whole British sort of Heath Robertson school of of trying to get wacky sounds mm. and using tape recorders that you slowed down and sped up, you know, a bit like, because that's what all there was then. There weren't computers and there weren't... You had to do it yourself. Mm. It was very crafty, art and craft type of recording. Remember, we had a guy who'd worked with George as Martin and the Beatles as our producer. Yeah. You know, and we have yeah. the whole history of Abbey Road and all those Beatles stuff, that kind of knowledge coming in combined with, you know, having Brian Eno there as well to try and create sounds and things. The atmosphere that you get with In Every Dream Home, I can remember first listening to that, and it is like the sound of a horror movie organ. It like is. It begins. It's creepy. Like it's creepy. a B-movie organ, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I hadn't heard anything like that before on an album, you know, like on a sort of pop album, a rock album, whatever you want to call it. To have a song start with that kind of sound, like a B-movie horror organ. Yeah. And then you're thinking, well, where the hell can this go? It's four chords that just repeat. And then the vote, and it's just, yeah, it's such an amazing song. You know, when I first joined Roxy and everything, it, the bubble in my head said, I'm in the Velvet Underground, you know, and, yeah. and John Cale's drone-type violas and things like that. You know, that's where we were coming from. But then to have that lyric about an inflatable doll, it's genius. It's amazing. But it was really funny in gigs. Uh, you'd see it from the back of the, the theatre, the inflatable doll. Someone would buy one and they'd pass it over the tops of their head as you got closer and closer <laughs> to the stage. You know, you're thinking, oh, shit, this thing. And, of course, then when it explodes at the end into that big guitar solo sort of freak-out thing, it, it was a really sort of hilarious but wonderful moment so i mean it was there was a lot of humor in roxy actually in the early roxy as well all the dressing up and all that as matt said earlier the fact that a lot of those songs early on didn't have any choruses no. did you it was roxy were famous for not having choruses in virginia plain and, and and most of those first two albums yeah um, remodel. That's true. Yeah. You somehow managed to make it hooky without the, the without the usual components, as, as as Matt said, which was fascinating. And I'd forgotten that um, the album came out the same day as um, same day as Ziggy, as same day as yeah. Ziggy. 
because I, I think I went and bought them on the same Saturday. <laughs> and didn't Something Anything, Todd Rundgren, didn't that come out the same week? Oh, really, did it? I think so. In and around the same time as you did your first album, I think. I could sure, be wrong. Sure, yeah. I mean, he, you know, he was just amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, he was another huge influence. and there's, But there is something about 1972 that is just an extraordinary year, sort of culturally and like musically. One thing that we, we always forget, I think, is that if you think the Beatles split up in 1970 and the Pistols arrived in 1976 and everything happened in between, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. literally, uh, you guys, Bowie, the Stones' is peak, the heavy metal, Zeppelin reggae disco everything started in between those in those six years the whole of music just went nuts didn't it when we were recording for your pleasure in studio one at air studios at george martin's studio in studio two they were mixing dark side of the moon yes and that was chris too wasn't it chris was involved in that wasn't he totally yeah well chris mixed it there and um once he finished that he he jumped on to do the rest of our, to do the album, because we'd done a single with another guy before. That was a good week's work for him, wasn't it? Mixing Dark Side <laughs> of the Moon and then straight on to For Your Pleasure. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> I'd met David Gilmore when I was 16. He was a friend of my brother's to ask him how to become a professional musician. So, so when I went uh, and heard, like, Money, the track Money, yeah, uh, with his guitar, I thought, oh, this is amazing. I sent him a telegram. It shows you how old I am. <laughs> sent him a telegram. Said, Remember me? I'm in a band now. It's called Roxy. Just heard your, your stuff. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's brilliant. Yeah. Really good. Um, Phil, let me ask you a bit about, you've got another collaboration going on at the moment with, with Tim Finn and, and yeah. um, second album, Dew. Caught by the Heart, the first one, sort of seemed to tap directly into your roots in places. I'm assuming the new one, Ghost of Santiago, does the same, judging by the title, if nothing else. Well, actually, it's, yeah, there's one track um, on the new album called Costeño, which is about uh, the Colombian coast where my mum was born, Barranquilla, about the carnival there. But that's the only one. The rest are totally different. The Ghost of Santiago, you know, is a a weird, very weird kind of... uh, song which is about a priest trying to run off with a nun in santiago (laughs) but she never turns up yeah and so Um, how did you how did you do it together because tim's in new zealand isn't he it was it all done by email he's in auckland and i'm sitting here (laughs) we go back a long way yeah 1975 me and the the finn brothers you know, I produced the first Split Ends album in 1975. Oh, yes, I'd forgotten uh, that. Oh, yeah. That's right. And then Neil was too young to be in Split Ends, but one of the guys left, and so he was he came over, and actually he was sent to me to have <laughs> some electric guitar lessons because he was just used to playing acoustic all the time. But, yeah, so I've known them since then, and a couple of years ago, Roxy were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So we're in New York. Uh, Neil, um, singing with Fleetwood Mac. Yes. Replacing Lindsay Buckingham for a year. And I had my picture taken with Neil, sent it to Tim and said, look who I bumped into in New York. And Tim said, well, that's great. Yeah, what are you doing? Do you fancy play some guitar on some tracks that I, that he was doing with Eddie Rayner, who's the keyboard player from yep. Splitter. And then lockdown happened. 
I'm sitting here. I'm on a. I've got a computer screen with an island in the Pacific on it. Up pops an email from a guy on an island in the Pacific saying, "Have you got any Latin grooves that I can write stuff to?" This started, you know, I started sending him stuff, and 25 songs later, the guy's a, a genius, and I sent him all kinds of weird music, and I thought he'll never write anything on top of this. But really, it's the same sort of thing I used to do in Roxy. I'm, I'm sort of good at doing music, musical worlds and stuff like that. Mm. Singers sometimes can get inspired and put their words into it and create something different, you know, than just writing in a conventional way where you sit at a piano, which I, you know, I can't do either. You know, but I have done some solo albums. I've sang on them. I've realised how difficult it is to write good words. Yeah. And those Finn brothers have got like an Irish gene through their mother and they've just got that way of telling stories and, and, and crafting words, you know. And so that's how it happened. So this next one's coming out, the end of July, is the next 10 of the 25. And it's excellent too. Uh, it's dropping listeners about the same time as, uh, as this episode. So uh, check it out now. Um, Matt, thank you very much for your album of uh, TV themes, particularly uh, Ronnie Hazelhurst's theme to Sorry, which I've always loved. It's a bit, very particular earworm, that one, isn't it? Well, it didn't exist. I mean, the only reason I did those is because I was asked to do like a covers album by the record label, which I didn't really want to do. The only way around it was to do some TV themes. So I just thought, well, why don't I do that? And I thought they would turn me down immediately. <laughs> They didn't. They said yes, and then I picked the ones that you couldn't that you couldn't get, couldn't yeah. really find. So I thought I would recreate those exactly, you know, as the original as I could. But so the, that was the reason for it. Just they often start out like the originals, don't they? And then they mutate. You know, like your version of Doctor Who. Goes, the main reason for that is because these things only are, are sort of fifteen seconds long, so you yeah. have to make up the rest. So the fifteen seconds bit that everybody knows then you make up some bit in the middle and then you go back to the 15 seconds that everyone knows again because they're not long enough <laughs> with doctor who you 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 mix delia derbyshire and the jams versions don't you kind of effectively the glam drums come in yeah that was the less successful one i think that's the one i'm a bit embarrassed about but, oh, really well there's always something that you you know on an album yeah. that you wish you hadn't done or whatever I've always loved the World in Action theme, and I'm, I thought that, that was great. Who who was that by? Who who did that? It was a a jam just between an organist and um, a percussionist. Okay. Uh, so does it exist as a bit of library music or something? Or it doesn't. No. It's not even. It isn't even library. It's impossible to find unless you sort of rip it from the TV. And are you old enough to remember any of these actually airing? As a tiny kid but anything that sort of frightened me i can remember world in action did it seemed like the scariest thing ever <laughs> any kind of current affairs thing you know where people were gravely serious with that kind of music i found more sort of frightening you know yeah. than any sort of horror film was it when world in action had that pretty kind of deep montage didn't it going over the thing of, of it did bombs it had war a hammond organ yeah yeah and I think it's why I'm obsessed with the Hammond organ. I think it comes from World in Action. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I know from your questionnaire that uh, answers that you're you're a big fan of the Doors. And you were telling me before we came on air that you were trying to get one of their records in in LA and you couldn't get it. Which one were you after? The um, LA Woman box set. 
and it was the only thing that they that they didn't have. So it's one of those like they did with the Stooges and everything, where it's the all the sessions, is it? All the sessions. Yeah. They've just gone back to um, Sunset Sound and sort of put it through not the old desk, but a eighties desk, and they've used the um, they used the echo chamber. I I I was in Sunset Sound also a couple of weeks ago, and and they let me look in the echo chamber. <laughs> and uh, it's one of those things that when you're a kid and you hear Doors albums or any album that was recorded there, and you know, and you hear the reverb, you just kind of imagine in your head that it's the size of a car park. Yeah. And then it's actually the size of like a large fridge. <laughs> really. And. Yeah, it's just never as it's never as exciting as you know as you kind of. Is that a plate reverb then? No, it's a it's an actual painted store cupboard, right? That has reflective surfaces. Yeah, so it's just got two hanging mics and a speaker sort of facing you, yeah. and then you shut this industrial type door, and that's the uh, that's their sort of world famous echo chamber. Because I've got the plug in of it also oh yeah doesn't say it's a cupboard on the plug-in i bet it, it really doesn't no <laughs> it doesn't tell you any of that abbey road was the actual basement wasn't it that they used i think is that right yeah that is a quite a big space the the echo again that's a, that's another slight sort of disappointment when you see it in the flesh because <laughs> it's not it's, is this your hobby going to look at echo chambers it's it kind of sounds like it is doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> I am interested in them, though. I mean, like, I'm interested in any kind of reverb, quite kind of geekily, I suppose. So what's the Abbey Road disappointment, then? Again, it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near as big as I thought it was going to be. It was just um, another old store cupboard. <laughs> Hate it when that happens, don't you? Um, Phil, on your questionnaire, you talked about music from your childhood, which included the soundtrack to My Fair Lady. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the stuff that you were hearing growing up in Hawaii and Cuba. How big an influence did, did that have upon you? When I was in Cuba, and that's when I you know, first started learning the guitar, because my mum was teaching me when I was about six or seven to sing Latin American songs they call evergreens you know which any restaurant you go to that's a spanish restaurant anywhere in the world you start seeing one of these songs like cielito lindo the whole um restaurant starts singing along with you you know because they are just absolute classics also at the time when i was in cuba all the people who became famous with the buena vista social club were at their prime playing you know in uh clubs and, and bars and things. So do you think any of that South American music had any impact on your guitar playing style and the, the, the way you developed as a musician? Uh, no, that music had no influence at all. <laughs> really? <laughs> guitar play, absolutely none. Yeah. No, because I was listening on the World Service to London. Ah, and okay. as I begged my parents to send me to London when I was like nine because I was obsessed by, you know, pop music and, and Elvis and, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I could hear the shadows and you could buy the shadows and Beatles and stuff. Send me to, to England. And then September 60 to, to September 60, I was at school, South London, and at the yeah. whole of the music that exploded in the 60s, that's where I learned, you know, you, everything. Yeah. So you were getting Beatles, what everyone else was getting, yeah. Stones and the Who, everyone else was getting... And then, yeah, you know, when 
Velvet Underground appeared, bought it on import, and, and you know, my close friend was a guy called Ian Cormick, who was a you know, writer called Ian MacDonald, in fact, you know, ran the NME and then wrote that amazing book on the Beatles, Revolution in the Head. So, you know, grew up yes. with him. And so we had everything that was going on in the 60s, fantastic musical education. All right, well, let's uh, have a listen to the records that you've brought in to share with us today, guys. Uh, Phil, let's start with you. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us what you've chosen. Okay, it's called One World by John Martin. It was his seventh studio album. A whole bunch of fantastic players on, on it, but they all play in a sort of groovy, uh, funky style, but with lots of echo and echo effects. So it's a very chilled album which during COVID I returned to, and it was wonderfully soothing to listen to. And um, he does a particular thing on the guitar with the echo, which is the sort of thing that I do and I've always done in a track called Small Hours, which is the last track. Well, let's hear some of it and then we'll talk some more. Go and get on up and fly away. Go on for Let me in. 
John Martin's One World, released on Ireland in 1977. You heard Small Hours, Big Muff and Dealer. Some might argue it's not exactly a forgotten album, but I definitely get the sense that it doesn't get the attention it deserves if talk ever turns to John Martin. Usually people go on about Solid Air and Grace and Danger, and this one does get overlooked, I think. But it's an extraordinary record, isn't it? When did you first hear it, Phil? Um, I must have heard it way back in the day, but never really focused on it at all. So it it's sort of rediscovered, really, during uh, this year, strangely enough. And I really focused in on it, realised that the people, you know, that Stevie Winwood is the keyboard player, that, that his soloing on it is just absolutely brilliant. And what you've got there is the sort of island records... Uh, Chris Blackwell team of musicians that he's brought together, folk artists and uh, funky artists, jazz players, and uh, and it, a lot of it's recorded outdoors. <laughs> I mean, it's very much a sort of um, 60s approach to sort of going away to the country and and just jamming and playing and seeing what comes up with grooves and things. But then you've got, um, you know, the influence of um, Jamaica, you know, yeah. in there, bizarrely, you know, with that, that track, um, Big Muff. Lee Perry was involved in that at one point, I think. I don't know if he's actually on the the album, but at one point they worked on that song together. Um, John went to Jamaica for a while and hung out there, and then they made this album when he came back. That's right, that's right. So, you know, Scratch Perry. So... The ideas of um, dub and all that kind of thing. It's just, it's, but it's just got an overall quietness about it. The album. It's not trying to have a hit single or anything. It's just an album album, and uh, <laughs> yes. you know, which is great. I've just read Chris Blackwell's autobiography. Oh, I um, want to read which that. Is yeah. really- is really interesting and he says about this record it's one of my favorite experiences in terms of producing an album for many 1977 was the year of punk and the end of the kind of progressive album orientated music that had been island speciality maybe one world was my reaction to punk my rebellion as revolution was in the air i decided to make a reflective john martin album in the countryside <laughs> yes it's totally out of step with what was happening on the streets and that's probably why i did never really focused on it at that time but it's it's amazing how records can come back so many years later when you need them when you need them yeah, yeah. cometh cometh the hour cometh the record <laughs> <laughs> blackwell says in his autobiography he describes ireland in the 70s as friendly chaos did you go in much did you hang out in 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 ireland when you were in roxy actually we did um, rehearse love is the drug uh, they used to have a studio at the back of the uh, offices in St Peter's Square. Mm. And actually we rehearsed the 801 Live thing with Eno and Sam Phillips and stuff uh, in that little room there. Yeah, so I mean, I don't think uh, actually Chris Blackwell really liked Roxy. He didn't get Roxy at all, but luckily it was someone else. I'm, in the book, does he mention anything? Because I think someone said that he only noticed us when he was walking through the offices one day and saw the album cover for the first album, he said, oh, that looks good, we should sign that. He says in the book that Tim Clark had told you you had a deal before he'd cleared it with Chris. 
Ah, that was oh, the thing. You see, Tim Clark, Chris Blackwell, our manager, David Enthoven, yeah. uh, were all connected because they're all bloody public school boys from Harrow, weren't they? Right. So bloody, you know, the Harrow <laughs> boy mafia. And Tim was like a director of the management company. We were a management company that had King Crimson, T-Rex, and us. And that was EG, yeah? That was EG management, yeah. yeah. And you were signed directly to them, weren't you? That's why you switched over to Polydor when they went. And yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. They, they, they originated this famous industry thing of the tape-lease deal. Yeah. Where you just lease your stuff to record company for so many years and then you get it back. And so did you hang out with John Martin at all? Were you aware of him? No, uh, I, 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 I'm totally aware of it. A bit scared of him, actually. Mm. Um, had a bit of a rep, didn't he, for being truculent? Yeah, he did. He did. And the, the, the double bass player, Danny Thompson, in the same, same thing. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, the, Ian McDonald knew Nick Drake, knew Paul, this guy called through Paul Wheeler. They were all great songwriters, Paul Wheeler too. And Ian wrote songs as well. But John Martin was part of that scene as well with all of them, you know. And um, so I was so aware of him, yeah. Mapped, uh, what do you make of this record? Did, did you know it before listening to it today? I did know it. The thing for me about John Martin is he's, he's a rare singer-songwriter that, that just didn't seem to be afraid of technology. Mm. He could have gone down a path, I suppose, of, of just him and his guitar, him and his piano, you know, just a sort of solo instrument with a solo voice, which is often the way, but he, he didn't. And not only was he not afraid of technology, he applied technology to do obscure things, like the sort of complex echoes and all that sort of thing, which would have been a lot more difficult to do back then than they are now. I mean... Mm. He's controlling the Echoflex like an instrument, isn't he? He's, he's playing yeah. it rather than it just being on. Yeah, and that's more something that um bloke who played the guitar solo on Heroes, Robert well, Fripp. Fripp. Oh, yeah, Fripp. It's, Fripp. Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of more of a Fripp thing to do. For a singer-songwriter, that's quite a different way to go, I suppose. Once he discovered the Echoplex, it seemed it really did change his the whole groove. I mean, you listen to his early folky albums and they're quite stiff, aren't they? And then suddenly he gets very dub style and his his groove completely changes on on these these records. Is it hard to use one of those things, Phil? Do you have to concentrate to make an Echoplex sound good or No. No, I mean, the, the, once you've got a volume pedal and you've got yeah. uh, the Echo then you can just have so much fun. I don't know. I wonder whether it was an Echoplex or whether it was a... Because around that time, they invented the Roland Space Echo, which is I yep. had straight away. Echoplex was a very expensive sort of one used in the 60s, and, and that and Binson's yep. very Floyd-type sort of thing. It creates a wonderful dreamy world, and I, 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 I can... You know, obviously he was taking a lot of drugs as well so he was probably just going into that world and the the words avert, hardly sung really i mean at times difficult to work out but it's, it's a wonderful meditative type of approach to words 
and his voice is very weird on this, isn't it? And I, when I first heard it, I just thought it was drunken slurring. But the the more I listened to it, I wondered whether there was some kind of effect employed, uh, as if they'd sort of atomized the voice slightly, or whether that was just a natural thing that you, what you're hearing is this thing in his vocal cords that that sort of splits the tone and makes it sound really kind of raspy. Uh, it's a very unusual sound. I I wasn't aware of any particular sort of treatment of his voice. I think that's just him singing round a microphone, yeah. sort of giving it his nuance, you know, and, and move the way he moves his mouth and, and the air comes out. I think that's, that's yeah. something particular to him. The minute you hear him sing, you know that's John Martin. There's some confusion about the running order on this record. The sleeve, produced apparently before the sequence is finalised, starts with Couldn't Love You More and ends with Big Muff. And the, but the labels on the first run started with Dealer and ended with Small Hours. Uh, so And the CD runs that way. Um, so you can hear this in <laughs> various different sequences, depending on what point in history you've bought the record. Which way are you, are you listening to it, uh, Phil? You, starting with Dealer and, um, uh, and ending with Small Hours. And, and ending with Small Hours, yeah. As you said, that was recorded outdoors, wasn't it? Across this lake that they were, they were next to. Yes, no, absolutely. And because uh, the, the engineer, Phil Brown, is someone who we used at Basing Street. Yep. He was one of the main engineers there with R- Rhett Davis. And um, I think he, he's brought out a book. I mean, he said, I think he did Talk Talk. He did, yeah. He did Spirit of the Inn and Laughing Stock as well, yeah. Yeah, so I can hear the, the sort of how that kind of sound and is, is in both. You know, that's very much Phil Brown. Matt, have you ever recorded outdoors, try, tried that kind of thing? I have done. I've set a guitar amp outdoors and put a microphone the other end of the garden a while ago. <laughs> did you get any wildlife in, in, inadvertently? Did Not you, really. Um, did you hear grass rustling? No, it was just the space in between the mic and the amp that I was interested in. That was yeah. interesting. Other than that, it wouldn't be interesting to anyone else listening to it, I wouldn't have thought. But you're actually you're actually hearing the guitar sort of floating across the water on that small hours, aren't you? You can hear the water lapping, and there's that's amazing. Yeah, the, there's ducks going on and stuff as well. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it's it's very cool. We um, when I after Roxy stopped in '83, and me and Andy Bakai had a band called the Explorers, and we and he was living in Ireland, and we went up to the lakes of Killarney because someone said there was an amazing echo if you went out in a boat. So we sent Andy out with his oboe to the middle of the lake, the boat, and we had a mobile recording studio. And we couldn't hear a bloody thing because he was too <laughs> far away. And uh, all the cars were stopping by. And people were coming out and saying, what's that Burke doing in a boat with an oboe? So that's the only bit of outdoor recording. It's hopeless. <laughs> Um, I just think this is an incredible record. I loved it when it came out in in the middle of that the punk thing. It it somehow made total sense there. It's a bit like you were saying earlier, Matt, about Tubular Bells being a punk move in some ways. There yeah. seemed to be something so swimming against the tide about this record that it was completely gripping to me. And there, there is a the, the track "Couldn't Love You More" is a, a throwback to his earlier sound, which, depending on which version you listen to, is the first track on the record. And then after that, the sort of folky stuff is out of the way, really, isn't it? It just becomes this 
world unto itself. Chris Blackwell says in his book that that's uh, why he loves it so much because he can just remember them completely concentrating on this on this sound and and the way that people just drop by. You know, Steve Winwood popped in, Danny Thompson, John Fields. There's all kinds of incredible people on here. Morris Pert. Mm. It just must have been the most amazing atmosphere to be to be part of, and John was in a good mood all the way through, so that that helped. <laughs> he wasn't too pissed all the time. <laughs> good, Matt. Let's uh, turn to your choice. Tell us uh, tell us what it is, and then we'll uh, give it a spin. So the album I've chosen is Bram Stoker's Heavy Rock Spectacular. Uh, when did it come out? Uh, from the early seventies. Fine, let's hear it. <laughs> on a budget easy listening label called Windmill in 1972 that's Bram Stoker's Heavy Rock Spectacular and you heard Born to be Free Idiot and Extensive Corrosion so Matt very little is known about this band uh, what can you tell us 
Um, they're a band from Bournemouth, and they supported The Who. And from what I have heard and have read, I think Daltrey told them that they were doing a good job and to keep going and put an album out, which this is. And the thing that I love about it is there's loads of ideas. There's loads of ideas that I really like. And it's a organ-led album in much the same way as The Doors were. And they're quite rare to have a band where the lead instrument is the organ. Yeah. Being in love with all organs, personally. Uh, this is, you know, this is... A, <laughs> all the organs. Yeah. This is a, a real sort of treat for me because it's got all the kind of cliches or what would now be described as kind of, you know, the sort of cliches. The, the playing is fantastic. And like I say, there's loads of ideas that are really good. I can't tell if this if this band made this record in all seriousness or with tongues in cheek. Does that matter? Or how would you say? Well, I think if it would have been made any later than 1972, then I think you could be right. But I think because it was made back then, I'm not sure that it was tongue in cheek. I think it was... I think the intentions were fairly serious. I mean, but, you know, in the same way that kind of Caravan was always slightly sort of tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Who knows the answer to that? But I just think because it was 72, there's it's less likely to be taking the piss than if it was 78, for instance. How did you first come across it? I just I saw the cover at a uh, record fair years ago. And thought it looked prog and thought it looked cool. And I paid six quid or whatever for it. And then, you know, was sort of doubly surprised, you know, to hear that it was actually really good. Now, I heard that they recorded, they demoed an album for Roger Daltrey. Is that is that right? I don't know that. Like I say, all I know is that they supported The Who and Daltrey was very supportive as a result. Well, I heard that he paid for them to demo a record. Did he? Okay. And I, I wondered if that's what this is. Oh, well, that's even better. Well, it sounds sort of rushed to me in a way, or in parts it feels like they're going, yeah, it goes like this, this is this is yeah. what it'll be. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I can easily imagine that Roger had this tape and sold it on to Tony Calder, who then put it out on his funny, funny label. <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, that could easily be the case. The It does sound demo studio um, yes. in terms of its sort of production. It's, it does sound like there was one take of everything. That's what I kind of like about it too. Yeah. I mean, um, the, the the organ player, is it Anthony Bron, Bron, Bronsden? Anthony Bronston, yeah. Bronston, yeah. He's, he's quite rough around the edges, he's playing in, in places, isn't it? You can hear him sort of missing a few notes and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I quite like that. You, you mentioned earlier that somebody taking themselves very seriously is, is just funny. But they're, yeah. they're, they're quite serious kind of doomy songs on here, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. They are. Are they amusing? <laughs> I mean, I haven't listened to it like that. I mean, all I'm listening to mostly is the atmosphere and the, um, yeah. you know, and the kind of playing. Um, I haven't ever really purposely listened to the words. You know, like I wouldn't if I was listening to a Uriah Heep album. I wouldn't listen closely to the words. That's ill-advised, I think. Yeah, yeah. probably. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure it could be. You know, that could be applied here. But I love the rough and ready style. You know. Ray Manzarek, you know, not a perfect keyboard player. Yeah. There is, you know, the off duff note and it just kind of makes you sound human. Yes. Um, what do you think of the seven-minute cover of uh, Fingal's Cave? I love it. The, <laughs> the jazz 
very odd time signature thing in the middle is a huge influence. And I love that piano sound. I'm obsessed with that piano sound that they have there and the that whole that, the way that it breaks down to that jazz tryout is the best way of describing that, I think. Now, I'm assuming they didn't mean to call their album Heavy Rock Spectacular, did they? Uh, no, and that's why I was confused about the top, because that album does exist just Bram Stoker, Bram Stoker. So okay. I don't know where that title came from. And I was hoping that, that uh, you might be able to tell me. Well, it just, I assume, it's, it sounds like someone that's running a budget uh, label, um, specialising, easy listening. I mean, he's, the other stuff on that label were things Warning like... Warning people almost. Well, yeah, but, but, but just saying it's like doing, you know, sounds like sitar or something, yeah, isn't yeah, it? You yeah, know, it's that yeah. kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Here's a heavy rock record. Yeah, um, yeah. Because the other stuff on the, on the label, um, the albums either side of this in their catalogue were World Pop Festival Volume 1 by the Westminster Silver Strings, and Pop Explosion Sitar Style by oh, Sagram. Yeah. That sounds so, amazing. <laughs> and they also had Dane Tempest with the Madison Pop Orchestra doing Sounds Like Frank Sinatra. So no, apparently right. this was one of 28 yeah. albums that they released in one batch. So I assume that's why he called it Heavy Rock Spectacular, just to, yes, differentiate it in the racks kind sense. of thing. Yeah. What did you make of it, Phil? Well, I love the cover. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I guess ha- having been brought up on the nice and then Deep Purple with John Lord and, and Keith Emerson, you know, I, I found it was a just a bit, not one thing or another, perfectly good playing and, and, and all that. I, I don't know about the, the direction of where the overall music was that made it different to enough to um, be successful. You know, I, I was more into the sort of Mike Ratledge soft machine type of, yeah. I guess coming from a jazzier kind of area, but with a distorted Lowry organ. Yeah, no, I wondered uh, whether it might have been recorded earlier than it was released, uh, thinking about it. If this, it feels like, music directly influenced by the nice or something and they formed in 69 and i wondered if this might have they might have made this in 1970 or something and by the time it came out it sounded a little bit out of step i I just i do love the 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 kind of kids energy that you're hearing in here it's 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 fun to hear them well that's what i like i like how kind of yeah i like how kind of naive it sounds and i think you're probably right i think it was or is a 60s recording um it, it just it has this shoddy playing and this kind of <laughs> naive vibe that I just can't sort of resist. And it's the um, flappiest fuzz bass sound I've ever heard recorded. It's very strange, isn't it? The the fuzz. It's they terrible. Use yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Phil, there must have been loads of bands like this in rehearsal rooms about the time that you started out. Who heard you and went, "Uh oh, the future's arrived." By that particular period, between 70 and 72, most of these kind of bands and, and people were like onto hard drugs and it had done them in. And then suddenly it was it made space for Bowie and us and to come up with a bit more visually attractive way of presenting the music and pulling together all sorts of influences 
from the the new twenty somethings, you know, and all the people associated with. What's fascinating about that is if you think that, say, King Crimson only happened in '69, didn't it? So you're only kind of three years yeah. in, and you're almost already replacing prog. It's barely had time to get off the ground in today's terms, but the evolution of music was so quick then, wasn't it? Things just flew out of the <laughs> of the gates. You know, people were putting albums out every six months, and prog was always already somewhere down the line by by the time Roxy came along and could have oh, did something oh, totally. else. Totally, and you know, we, when we were doing pub gigs, uh, you know, Genesis were doing the same pub gigs, sometimes yeah. on the same night. So, you know, so there was a crossover there. But then Crimson changed into a, a, a different Crimson in 72. But this was a different strand came up of people who uh, were sort of influenced by the Velvet Underground, the idea that if you had a good idea you didn't need to be technically that proficient. You know, we were called ourselves inspired amateurs. Most of the songs only had two or three chords in them. And that was the blueprint for the whole punk thing. Mm. Matt, this record, um, we talked a little bit about whether it was of funny or not. Is that something you pay attention to when you're making music? Do you like to bring out the humour or are you wary of it because of your parallel career? I am wary of it, but I think being a Brit, I think it it's impossible to avoid. I think we cannot help it um, <laughs> in any artistic thing that we do. Yeah. I think even if you try not to, you're going to be sarcastic in some way or you're going to, you know, refer to something in a way which could be considered humorous. I just think it's impossible to avoid have you noticed you get a different reaction in Britain because of your fame as a comedian to the music than you do in other countries? Or is that affected the way it's been received here at all? In the beginning, I would say so, but not so much now. I think yeah. in the beginning it could have you know, it could have been viewed as someone doing something for a, a wheeze or a bit of a joke. But if you've been doing it for sort of over a decade and there's albums, you know, that, and you're still on the same record label then it's kind of looks like it's you know i don't want to use the word serious but you know what i mean yeah well yeah that you that you you're not just playing yeah (laughs) yeah um gather up was a was a was a really good compilation what did you kind of look for when you were putting that together what were you kind of interested in in getting across i didn't want to because it's too difficult i think if you have to come up with what is considered your best work the actual kind, of, you know, the ideas for the track were done by the record label, and then I, and if they went sort of wildly off piste, you know, then I would say something. But I thought it best that they, you know, that they kind of choose what they consider to be the best because I didn't think that was my place, to be honest. Uh, are you happy with the with this selection that they made? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I had a hand in the sequencing of it because I thought that, you know, I thought that was important. Yeah. I don't know, you know, because these are songs, you know, that weren't kind of meant to be played next to each other. So, you know, (laughs) you have to make it sound slightly natural. All right, let's move on to to my choice. And the album I present to you is by Willie Bobo, a Tim Barley player, Puerto Rican, but but, uh, raised in New York, made a string of albums in the 60s. And this was uh, his second album for Verve, 1966. It's called Uno, Dos, Tres. And uh, it sounds this way. (laughs) 
Bobo from Uno Dos Tres, one, two, three, 1966, and you heard fried neck bones and some home fries going out of my head, Michelle, and no matter what shape your stomach is in. Um, well, this is the album that turned me on to Boogaloo, which if you don't know what that is, the simplest way to describe it, I suppose, is music created by second generation uh, Latino kids in New York in the early 60s who was sort of searching for a sound that spoke to them in the way that blues, Motown and soul did for... Um, their Afri- african-american neighbors um you know that period the mambo kings like tito puente were still packing them in uptown uh but they were playing cha-cha-cha for tourists in some ways and that music felt too square and nostalgic and distant for the teens that had been born and bred in new york city so they started experimenting with soul and blues changes over latin rhythms and singing about their everyday lives in english and this kind of hybrid, a kind of pop-soul song with a call-and-response aspect sometimes, driven by Latin percussion, became known as a boogaloo. And pretty soon every Latin act was expected to do a boogaloo at some point. And that's what you're hearing on on, on this record uh, in several instances. Uh, Willie Bobo, real name uh, William Correa, was Puerto Rican, raised in New York, and he was this prodigious timbali player as a kid and he was a drummer as well and he'd actually been in Tito Puente's band and he played with Cal Chader and Monco's Santa Maria 
And he was approaching his 30s when he made this album and he wanted to blend the music he'd been raised on with the music that his own kids liked. So he understood the appeal uh, of that, of the sort of boogaloo thing, but also the objections to it. You know, to the established older generation of players, there was an element of sacrilege to it. It was like punk rock. The the teenage bands who popularised it could be scrappy compared to the virtuoso Titos who were highly skilled in the subtle rhythmic definitions of mambo and rumba and, and, and all that. And one of the early Boogaloo hits was Mongo Santa Maria's version of Watermelon Man, uh, which started him out on a career of doing soul and jazz covers. If you ever see a copy of his greatest hits, by the way, you should snap it up. It's fantastic. And that helped point the way for doing these Latin interpretations of pop tunes, which is what Willie's doing here with Rescue Me and Michelle and Going Out of My Head, and also new compositions in the Boogaloo style. Uh, one weird thing about Boogaloo was its slight obsession with songs about soul food and uh, fried neck bones and some home fries is currently the best known track on this album. It's this greasy slow groove that was covered at Woodstock by Santana and it's had six million plays on Spotify. Um, and that's exactly the kind of thing that, that the Boogaloo recipe was, was just shouting about everyday things that the kids understood uh, over these these groovy tracks. I discovered this record a few years ago thanks to an American record club called Vinyl Me Please. I was subscribing to their classic strand and I was sent it automatically, knew nothing about it. I put it on and thought, oh, wow, this is terrific. I I was just seduced by it over a couple of plays. Um, the, the cover of Michelle was the first thing that, that really got to me. Um, and I hesitate to say it, but that, that might be one of the few Beatles songs that that's possibly reached its sell-by date. I don't know. It, it's... I don't, something about Michelle doesn't seem to resonate anymore. But the way Willie does it, he sort of future proofed it by playing it at great speed and having this irreverent chanting of Michelle, my bell. And um, side two opens with uh, the the best original on the record, that song, No Matter What Shape Your Stomach Is In, which is so infectious. I defy anyone not to dance to it when it comes on. No one's playing a drum kit on this record. It's all carried by timbales, cowbell, bongos, conga, and the bass guitar. And that gives it all a real airiness you don't normally hear. There's no no kick drums were kicked in the in the making of this album. Um, uh, it's produced by the great Creed Taylor, whose distinctive signature on the back of a record is always a mark of quality. Um, the only weak moment on, on the album for me is a cover of Old Man River, uh, which doesn't, in my opinion, respond terribly well to being taken at a hectic pace and seems rather disrespectful of the song's original intent. But apart from that, I'm saying this album's great from end to end, with half of it, at least half of it, being outstanding. Um, what did you make of it, people? Matt? It is interesting that there is no that there is no drum kit, yet you don't at all miss it. Yeah, um, you get everything you need from the handheld percussion that's going on. That's that's a good sort of lesson, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I'm n- not usually sort of fond of instrumental covers. He says after doing a TV themes album, but. Um, this was slightly different. I mean, in that there was a, a sort of sunshine about the whole thing. Even something like one, two, three, which is a was it Len Barry did that or somebody That's right, yeah, years yeah. ago, and that which is kind of a sort of melancholic. It's you know it's a nice chord change in that had eradicated all of that, and it almost sounded like completely sort of major the whole way the whole way down. I just love live, you know, live 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 playing and the sound of a 
you know, of a bunch of people being into what they're doing. That sounds, you know, kind of simplistic, but there's no other way I can really describe it. No, absolutely. And I think that the energy is is a real factor in this, isn't it? You, it's It's got that brilliant control where they're, they're, they're not overdoing it, but it's taken a lick. Most of the songs are really quite fast, aren't they? And, yeah. And, and it's quite hard to make that groove as well, but they really pull it off. Um, Phil, did, did you know this record at all? Were you aware of Willie's work? No, no. The funny thing, actually, is that to choose that as a stage name is quite weird because Bobo in Spanish means, you know, daft person. <laughs> so it, it, it's strange that he that he called it a Willy Bobo. Um, so, you know, if you speak Spanish, that's like, what? Um, yeah, I mean, what all the musicians are playing, it's great. Just the material to me, it's not one thing or another. You know, eventually you get Santana bringing latin into the rock world and before that you get um willie's mentor really machito the famous machito from cuba going to new york in the 40s and just and 50s and absolutely rinsing the jazz world when they heard the cuban musicians playing and the grooves duke ellington camp basically all those people just lapped it up and had a huge influence on jazz in New York, then I can understand from what you say that they were wanting their own uh, kind of uh, ex- way to express themselves, the, the second generation. But um, I, I can see why it, it didn't. I mean, the Fanier All-Stars, which obviously came later, I think were a lot more dynamic what it evolved into but this being it's interesting because this being like the beginning if you like of all that well i think they 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 recognized a need for something that wasn't what the dads yes. had been doing wasn't it well the, the uncles the titos had yeah. been doing um and uh and and farnia did the sort of acceptable version of that to the old school because it was more traditional and it was sung in spanish and everything but i i i i love the kind of the punk feel of this that it was local it was new york it was just singing about the stuff that they were hearing on the streets and filtering it through the latin vibe you know uh, I, I think that's no I, I i get that i'm wondering whether you know doing those particular covers mm. uh was really what <laughs> was wise was being heard on the streets <laughs> you know uh, quite frankly if i would be the producer said so no 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 okay tell us about your life on the streets, you know, what it was was really like. I mean, this is sort of like a, trying to be a bit commercial somehow. Yeah, Just, and I think Willie you know, was somewhere yeah. between the two impulses. He wasn't one of the teenagers that were writing. So there are guys like Joe Batan and, 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 and other Boogaloo artists who really are singing street stuff and telling you exactly yeah. what, what their lives are. Um, and And Willie is really caught between those two factions the old guys that he understands and the kids that he's he's sort of trying to entertain if you like um so yeah that that that's fair 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 comment there's there's not much in on this record apart from the fried neck bones thing uh of (laughs) (laughs) of just singing about your favorite food (laughs) um i mean fried neck bones that's a that's a 
Wow. I don't fancy that it. Sounds it dodgy. It's not selling no, it to me. No. But... <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> what, what do you know, Phil, about the the Latin rhythmic rules? You know how how each of these sub sub genres like mambo and stuff seem to have particular things that rhythms that define them, don't they? Yeah. Well, basically, you've just got to get this idea of a clave, which is the groove, the beat that's implied, and it's it's not you can't count. Latin music in the normal way you count European music or your rock and roll and stuff. Yeah, that's why rock and roll people can't play Latin, and Latin people can't really play rock and roll very well uh, because the clave comes from Africa. It's almost like voodoo. Well, it is a kind of voodoo. It's a sort of a groove that everybody is in their heads and they all play to it but it's ne- no one actually counts it out. So it's, it is incredibly complex, rhythmically. And that's why you try and break down what they're playing, even in this. It's very difficult to do that. And each variation d- defines a different thing, does it? So a mambo does a particular tempo or a particular version of that, that rhythm and a cha-cha-cha is something else. It, 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 that's my understanding of how, of how it works, Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they all originated from sort of uh, religious uh, ways of communicating between the tribes in West Africa, brought over to Cuba, Havana, in you know, at the end of the 15th century. The rhythms mean something in the Santeria, which is the, you know, the religion. And that's why when they took it to New York, the jazz thing, they, they, they would just, like, freak them out. On one level, it's... You know, even dancing Latin music is really not easy. You know, I mean, if you ever tried it, and people who do it well, if you've seen people in Cuba and South America, when they dance to the grooves, it's like magic. Yeah. It's a sort of magic thing. You're, 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 you're weaving in and out of the groove, really, aren't you, rather than following the pocket when you dance. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it, it's not like... You're integrating with it. You're sort of at one with it yeah. in a bizarre sort of way. And it's absolutely fascinating. That's why, you know, to a certain extent, uh, this is a little bit of a hodgepodge. The, 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 as a record, it's like not one thing or another. So it's difficult for me to... Yeah. Having been brought up on all the different real things you know essentially it's a it's latin music it's a dance music yeah you know that's why it took donkey's ears for pop music to have any impact in south america because they already had their really groovy funky dance music and then this lightweight pop stuff appeared yeah. from england and from uh, america they didn't whereas need it. you know the groove yeah that, that you know and then yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big topic. <laughs> well, it's fascinating, isn't it, that that whole thing, and, in, and Chris Blackwell mentions this in his book about the way that um, uh, reggae evolved from soul and then just interpreting it in a different way and going with the offbeat instead of the onbeat and completely yeah. completely different attitude to the groove. Suddenly they created this this new thing that on that tiny island made complete sense to them <laughs> you know yeah and, fantastic. So, and yeah. so that that kind of regional aspect to a to a, a groove like what you're feeling in the air 
is 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 interesting, isn't it? Because we probably in our northern hemisphere uh, have sort of lost the ability to lock into that groove in the air, maybe, uh, or or maybe we've just got a different one. Maybe we've just got a four square one that we're that we yeah we, yeah no, which is great as well. Yeah. It's just different. Yeah, we're different. Matt, one of the things that struck me about your records is, you, and you mentioned it a bit before, about searching f- for atmospheres. Yeah. What are the what are the ones that y- you really respond to? What are the things that over time you've gone, oh, if only I could get close to that or, or, or whatever? What are the particular kind of... Well, I think it's the same as most people. It's just that it's, it's, it's either atmospheres that sort of take you by surprise, whether that's, you know, in a sort of very negative way you know, or a very kind of or a very kind of positive way, but most, but my inspiration seems to be, um, around the same sort of thing with one foot in absolute joy and the other foot in sort of longing sadness. So it's that kind of bittersweet atmosphere. That's what I'm always searching and, you know, sort of trying to nail. I don't think I've done it yet and I may never, (laughs) but you know, I won't stop sort of trying, I suppose. Phil, Roxy, been going for 50 years. Um, you've seen technology change massively in that time. Does all the stuff you have at your disposal now, does it actually make make it harder to make records or is it easier? It just makes it, di- it not harder. I mean, look, in some ways it's easier, but, you know, that, that's a whole new topic. You'd, are we making albums now? Are we just individual tracks, you know? So there's a, there's a big discussion there uh, about will people listen to albums, old albums? Well, I'm sure they will, but I, well, I hope they do. Um, otherwise, we're all going to feel a bit uh, weird on this show, if nothing else. Um, guys, the clock is looking at its watch, so it's time for me to uh, draw this to a close. Thank you so much for uh, joining me and uh, being on the show. Thanks. Lovely to, to, to hear you, Matt, too. And thanks, Jim. No worries. Thank you so Cheers, much. Cheers, Phil. Yeah. Okay. Cheers. Cheerio. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye, Matt. Bye-bye, Jim. Bye. And don't forget, as usual, you can hear all three albums plus a load of the tracks we've been talking about today by searching Spotify playlists for You're Not On The List, Season 1, Episode 5. That's up there right now. And there's also a playlist called You're Not On The List, The Story So Far, which we update every month with a track from each of the albums we've been discussing. And that's growing into a very handsome distillation of all the music we cover. If you have any comments or queries, head over to jimirvin.com. There's a contact page there that will send us an email. And one flooded in recently from Steve Cadman, somewhere in the vicinity of Rutland, who writes, Love the podcast so much so that myself and two friends are planning to recreate it in the pub, the horse and jockey in Oakham, Rutland, in a couple of weeks' time. I've chosen David Bearwald's triage album, my mate Andy chose Peter Casey's Flying Saucer Blues, and Crispin chose Gay Dad's Leisure Noise, a fine album. Uh, we already spend most of our time buying, talking about or playing music, so no great departure. It's really a dry run for being stuck on a tour bus across Europe and Scandinavia in September with the band Big Big Train. I aim to instate it across the band and crew. I'm sending them the questionnaire. We have a long drive from Berlin to Switzerland, which I think would be ideal. 
Well, I'd be fascinated to know how that goes, Steve. Thanks for getting in touch. And he adds that the Fleetwood Mac album mystery to me is terrific. Shame to say I'd never heard it. Uh, and I was particularly intrigued by Doris. I never in a million years would have come across that. And I've worked in record sh- shops and record labels for 20 years. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? Dan from Humberside agrees. That Doris album is incredible. Please thank Bill Brewster for choosing it. And over on Twitter, listener John Dennis wrote, uh, I grew up in Lewisham and saw Dex's support the specials and so really enjoyed that episode with Bill Brewster and Partha Banerjee. I also owned two of the albums discussed and had bought the third before I'd finished listening. That's brilliant. Thank you so much uh, for everyone that gets in touch. Keep your communications, comments and retweets coming. They're much appreciated. Don't forget to comment on the show or subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts as all interaction helps the algorithm get off its arse and drive new listeners towards us. Thank you very much once again for listening and do join us next time for more Forgotten Albums and the people who love them in You're Not On The List. Till then, bye-bye.